welcome to Adult Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is usually a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's Adult Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. But in this special episode, we are talking about the 2007 film, The Golden Compass. <laughs> Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good, yeah. I mean, I've watched the Golden Compass film twice in the past three days, so I'm feeling um, a simmering rage in the heart of my soul, to be honest. <laughs> same, same. Uh, I uh, can't believe we've watched it twice in three days. That's too many times to watch it ever how have you been in yourself this week how has this week gone it was very nice to see you at the weekend yeah that was fun yeah it's been fine I, as always i can't remember a single thing that i've actually done apart from see you what the fuck have i done not much just you had the week off i did i had the week off yeah i've got two weeks off work but i, I didn't do that I, well i spoke last week about how i went back to see my family and so since we last recorded i haven't really done that much apart from like edit the podcast and see you that sounds really nice and chill <laughs> yeah it, it has been chill i always say it like when you have a couple of weeks off work and you get to the second week and you start thinking about how you've got to go back to work soon like so we're recording this on tuesday and i know that i've still got like quite a few days left before i go back to work next monday but i'm like oh it's creeping up on me i'll be back at work soon yeah it'll be fine my housemate's taking a week off work like a, a similar to you like a bit of a staycation vibe like he's just doing some little projects and stuff and I'm like that sounds so fun but like my day job is all of the little projects that I would think about doing if I had a regular job and I took time off work so I was just like I'll just carry on working I guess <laughs> yeah that's true you don't really do time off properly do you unless you like actually go on holiday like away from your house yeah when your hobby is your job and you do the thing that you do for your job to relax and unwind it's really hard to relax and unwind <laughs> totally so we sat there watching tv and i'm like oh, i could also be drawing or sketching or knitting or sculpting or doing something right now and then it's like you should be allowed to just sit and do nothing but also i don't want to i have to have busy hands <laughs> i'm very similar actually because there's there hasn't been in this like week and a bit that i've had off there hasn't been any time where i've sat and done nothing yet I, i've always been doing something and i'm like Maybe I should actually just do nothing for a bit. Otherwise, I'm going to go back to work and it's going to feel like I haven't actually had any time off because I've just been like so busy all the time, like doing something. It's like, I really need to just do nothing for at least a couple of hours. Yeah, but then you feel crap when you do nothing sometimes. And you're like, oh, I've done nothing for two hours. I feel rubbish. I hate it. Why is, why is the world wanting me to be productive all the time? I know. <laughs> it's capitalist society, Rich. <laughs> That's how we've grown up and it's horrible and I hate it. You base your self-worth on your productivity. Yeah. yeah. Oh no, horrendous. Hate, hate to see it. Hooray. I suppose we could talk about how we watched the Golden Compass film. Yeah, with our lovely patrons. So Faye watched the film for the very first time in her life, along with our live watch along that we chatted with all our patrons and everyone had some snacks. And we were in the big group chat while we were watching the film. So I imagine it's quite a chaotic first way to watch what is quite a chaotic movie. Yeah, it was strange because I didn't feel... It was amazing. I loved talking to everyone. And I'm glad that like my first experience of the film was that. But also, I, I when you're chatting in such a like fast-paced group, there was loads of stuff that I wasn't paying attention to in the film. So then when I watched it the second time, obviously we'll get into our thought, uh, thoughts and feelings soon. But I was like, okay, 
I know the periphery of what's happening in this film and feel the rage from everyone else when like something specific happened. But other than that, I was like, okay, I think I definitely need to watch this a second time. They cram a lot in. They cram a lot into that film. If you watched the TV series and thought at any point this eight hour long TV series is feeling a little bit rushed, imagine the editing involved getting it into less than two hours. Oh my God. Nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, it was really fun watching with patrons and we might do some more watch-alongs of just completely non-HDM related stuff because there was talk about Twilight recently and I would love to do a watch along of Twilight because I've not seen it in years. <laughs> Literally so many years. I've avoided it for so long. <laughs> I know. So maybe we'll do that at some point. And maybe a spooky film at Halloween. Oh definitely. Oh yeah. Oh we watch Midsummer so much that we should all watch Midsummer. I mean it would need to depend on whether people like gore and whether they like horror and horrendous tension. But if they do I would love to watch that with everyone. Just... Yeah we have talked about it a lot on the podcast. <laughs> exactly yeah totally. Do you know what would also be fun? Because we talk about Buffy so much, to watch a Buffy episode. That would be really fun. Let's pick some that feel particularly Golden Compass appropriate. Maybe Prophecy Girl? Oh yeah, it's very Mm Prophecy-y. Anyway, such a brilliant sidetrack. Speaking of patrons, we want to give a massive shout out to the ladies from Girls Gone Canon who've upped their pledge. Thank you so much. Yay. And welcome to the Discord as well. Yeah. Quite new to the Discord. Yeah, Eliana, welcome to the Discord. Yeah. And yeah, thank you so much. We love you guys, as you know. Um, so it's really nice to... You've been with us for as patrons for a while, but to have you up your pledge is amazing. So yeah, thank you so much. And Eliana, hope you're having fun in the Discord. It was great to have you on the watch along chat. Especially, and Eliana, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong if you're listening did you come to the she I think that she came to the film before she read the books because she mentioned in the watch along we were all up in arms about Yofa being called like Ragnar Stilson or something yeah and I think Eliana mentioned like oh I always accidentally call him Ragnar before I think of Yofa so that made me think that perhaps she came to the film before she came to the books but Eliana if you're listening you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong so I suppose one of the other things we need to say is that this is our last episode before we have a little break. Yeah, so we've got like a few cute little bits coming out on Patreon that we've got planned for during the break, but obviously we are also taking a break because we need a little break. So. Yeah, we don't want to burn out because that, would, that wouldn't be good. We want to come back for the subtle knife and be super hype and ready. And I mean, the subtle knife, she's only 15 chapters long. We've got some like hefty chapters to really dig our teeth into. Yeah. And we want to give you some good stuff. So yeah, like Rachel said, we're going to be doing a few bits here and there on Patreon. So if you want to join us, as always, it's patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. And we'll obviously still be chatting in the Discord throughout the break. So even if you want to pledge at the lowest level, which is $2, that gets you into the Discord. And we've got a great bunch of people in there who are so lovely and... We're adding more and more channels now. So we've got a gaming channel and we've got a non-HDM related book channel. Come and join the family because it's really fun in there. Say I have a question for you. Okay, what is it? If your demon could still change, what would your demon be to sum up your feelings about the film? (laughs) Oh my God, I have not thought about So we're sat there, we're watching the film, we're chilling. What do you think your demon would be at that point in time? And do you think it would change partway through the film <laughs> because you'd get angry? <laughs> so like, okay, I feel like first bit of the film, I was a bit like, huh, this is interesting and not really what I thought, but like, it's fine. I understand. So like, my interest would be peaked uh, just a tiny bit. Just like, I'd be like, hmm, what's going on here? So maybe like a little mouse, like sticking its little head out of its little 
I'm picturing like a cartoon mouse with a little sitting in a popcorn bucket eating yeah. popcorns. Yeah, little mousey. Exactly. So that, and then when it just starts getting to like a massive shit show, which is how I would describe it, things have been changed left, right, and centre. You've got no fucking idea what's going on. Then I would be a change to something quite angry. So maybe I'm gonna maybe I'll steal from you and be like a little pissed off house cat. Mm-hmm. What about you? I'm thinking like something like a little gopher or a little groundhog or something because they're like look they're quite rodenty. They can be quite cute. They can like pop their little heads up and be interested in the film. But you get the impression that they're like grumpy motherfuckers and you shouldn't mess with them. I think he'd be chilling there, he'd be eating his popcorn. And then when stuff got angry, have you seen the the thing of the, it was like a BBC TV show that was like a groundhog or a, some kind of go-free thing that's like, Alan, Alan, Steve, Steve, the little shouty, shouty little thing. That guy, he'd just be standing there. He'd be like upright on his little legs and he'd be shouting at the screen at all of the plot inconsistencies. <laughs> Classic. Yes. Cute. I think that would be my demon for the duration of the film. <laughs> So, the film came out in 2007, directed by... Chris Weitz. Directed and written by Chris Weitz. There was a different screenplay written by somebody else, and when Chris decided to direct, he said that he wanted to write his own screenplay, because apparently the other one was worse than this. <laughs> yeah, I read... So, there's a vul- you might have seen the same Vulture article, but there's a Vulture article from 2007 when the film came out, and basically it says that... Uh, I'll link to it in the description, but it says that it talks about it talks about those two different versions of the script. So there's one there was one floating around in two thousand three by someone called Tom Stoppard, and it was deemed too long, and Philip didn't like it. Philip said it was too interested in the discussions of old men, which we appreciate, Philip. Thanks for mm-hmm. calling that shit out. White's script was better, and this is the description that the article said. So it says. White's early draft, the still long, 156 pages, I think the original that the other guy did was like 180 pages or something, maybe even more, and likely three hours of running time is sharper, funnier, and more streamlined than Stoppard's. It's also more exciting, more coherent, and significantly better than the final product. It vividly and more clearly creates the various world uh, Lyra inhabits. Jordan College, London, Egyptian's Burts, and the Ice Bear's Palace. It includes wonderful scenes left out of the final film, Mrs. Coulter's Great London Party, the Egyptian spy Jacob's last words spoken by his demon, Lyra's meeting with the witch's consul in Trollesund, and Lyra's talk with Yorick about loneliness, and Lyra's discovery that the nurses at Bolvanger have gone through the indecision process, and the ice bear's been nervous about acting human. And then they go into like talk about, well, why was all that cut? Presumably to keep the film to two hours, but why did the Golden Compass need to be held to two hours? Surely the Lord of the Rings movies have proved that great epics can be epic lengths and remain successful. New Line had already spent $180 million on the movie. Few of the new scenes would be expensive ones as a big pricey set pieces from the book, e.g. the bear fight and the battle scenes are already there on screen. In the end, it was it was a decision... It's, this is from a direct quote from the article. In the end, it was that decision more than any other that doomed the Golden Compass to mediocrity. <laughs> it kind of perfectly explains all of the stuff that we were going, well, that's missing, and it was there, but something happened. Let's kind of scoot back just one second to talk about what your assumptions were going in, because... I have seen the film. I saw it quite a long time ago and I've maybe seen it twice before this current watch through for the podcast. My memories of it were 
bad CGI. Lyra's quite annoying. The witches are cool. The end is really annoying, and I remember being really, really angry about the ending. I remember being really mad about Mrs. Coulter being blonde and kind of hating Nicole Kidman for it, which is something that's drastically changed on this watch through. I remember the bear fight being okay, but that the bears looked awkward. I remember it being very, very, very gold and very, very like polished and ho- Hollywoody and quite like full of Hollywoody action filmy fantasy cliches. I don't know what your assumptions were going in, but that's what I thought I remembered about the film. And I think you remembered correctly, really. I don't have that many, and most of them are right. So, like, one of my biggest ones that was that... Because I remember, like, seeing the poster and stuff when I was younger, but obviously I I had no idea that it was related to, to really a book series. I just, like thought that it'd be like really plinky plonky up its own ass and I think it was so it's very like we're all super posh and like we're all white and we all wear like tweed suits and shit it is very much like that as we were saying in the we'll get into it I'm sure but as we were saying in the discord chat so fucking difficult to tell all those white men apart like I couldn't tell like which character was supposed to be which. Yeah, so I think that was my main assumption. But also there's things I'd picked up over the years and from doing our interviews like Roger doesn't die, which he doesn't. Uh Lyra has blonde curly hair and is a I had that she's a bit annoying as well. There are too many demons and it looks weird, although I don't think there were too many demons. I thought that the level of demons was fine. Nicole Kidman is a good Mrs. Coulter, which yeah, I agree with, like on a a surface level, like she obviously doesn't, I don't want to do too much comparison between especially the actors in the TV show and the film, because I don't think it's, it's fair, but I will say that, so Nicole Kidman as Mrs. Coulter was good for the level of the film, like she was probably the best character, but obviously Ruth Wilson adds that emotional depth, and also Ruth Wilson's Mrs. Coulter is in such a more well-rounded adaptation of the book that it just lends itself that she would be more emotionally in-depth anyway. And I don't think that's anything bad against Nicole Kidman. I think Nicole Kidman did a really good job with what she had to work with. It's very white, which I've already said, and it is. And that the CG is quite good for the time, which I do think it is, actually. For, like, 2007, I think everything looks pretty decent. Like, there's a few bits where it's kind of my personal taste that I wouldn't have included that, like, there's fucking alethiometer dusty montages when Lyra reads it, but the demons and all that kind of stuff, I don't think it looks bad. Like, for the time, it probably looked really good. We did watch some behind-the-scenes videos about the demons, and everybody was very proud of themselves. And I have to say, I remembered the CGI being awful. And whilst it is has dated, um, it's not as bad as I remember. <laughs> no, totally. And, like, I think that if I'd have read the books as a kid and then watch this film, I would have been fucking furious. I would have been absolutely fuming about how shit it is. I'm I'm not... This episode is going to be a lot of me and Rich talking shit about this film, because, like, I did not enjoy it. But... I am going to be try. I am going to try. There are bits that I did like. I'm trying to... I'm going to try and not be, like, overly critical about it. But I would have been fucking fuming if I'd have read the, the book as a kid and then saw that film. I would have been like, what have you done to, like, my favourite book? How dare you? How dare Absolutely. I think I've said this before on the podcast, but I definitely, the casting for Lyra was like an open casting call. They held casting calls all throughout the south of England and people queued, and there's a really cute little video, we should share a link to it, of like, uh, I'll put it in talking the description. about, yes, talking about the process of finding Lyra. And I, I think they announced it on like Newsround or Blue Peter or something on CBBC because 
I freaked out. I had read the books by this point, or at the very least I'd read the first book. And I was like, oh my God, mum, please, 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 please take me. Like, I'm just the right age. Whoa. Obviously wasn't Southern enough. Um, <laughs> and my my parents did not want to like drive all the way to the south of the country just to like stand in a queue for hours on end. Yeah. Um, but it is very much that. And there's a lovely little film of them like going down the queue, asking different groups of girls like why they love Lyra, why they want to be Lyra. And it's so heartwarming to see so many lovely, strong little girls just like, Lyra's brilliant. I want to be Lyra. And I'm like, it's me. And it makes me want to cry. Oh, and then totally. it makes me want to cry again when I watch the final product. So I think if I'd have, imagine being a massive fan of the books, like diehard fan of the books, wanting to be Lyra, getting the role. I mean, Showing up to the premiere and watching that film. Be like, oh shit. And like, so I don't want to be a nitpicker about a lot of the details because I fully recognise that an adaptation is just that. A lot of things have to be adapted and changed in order to make them function properly in a film format. And so I don't begrudge some of the changes, but I do begrudge the changes that feel way more like a complete butchery of my favorite books <laughs> yeah and can you imagine because the casting process sounds very similar to what happened for Hermione in Harry Potter and I was the same I uh, drink everyone I was the same I wanted to go and like my mum wouldn't take me and I think it was the same thing like it got announced on news round or whatever but like can you imagine if you got the role of Lyra and then we as your friends all had to pretend that the film was good because we didn't want to hurt your feelings oh my god <laughs> <laughs> But in fairness to um, Dakota Blue, it's Dakota Blue Richards, right? Yes. Yeah. In fairness to Dakota Blue Richards, I she does a good job of being Lyra. I don't think it's anything, there's nothing wrong with her performance. Like, as a child actor, I think she's actually pretty good. I think it's just obviously the final product. Because there's obviously, we know there's lots of stuff we'll, which we'll probably get into that they filmed that they didn't put in. So she filmed all that stuff. It's not, it's not on her. Like, she did a good job. It's the fucking editing and the studio getting involved in shit Mm -hmm. it's definitely a lot of the performances so in my best trying not to be the grumpiest of grumps and (laughs) just tearing this film apart which it would be quite easy to do there's a lot of nitpicking that can be done that isn't as necessary as like asking why they changed a lot of stuff but things that stood out to me that i actually really enjoyed were completely ignore the like cold open um, voiceover exposition central is, bit. Who is doing that voiceover? It is Serafina Pepper. Is it? it is Eva, okay. Eva Green. Eva Green, yeah. Yeah. And so if we ignore that, if we just cut straight to like Lyra running around, picking up clumps of mud, having that lovely little argument with Billy Coster at the gates of Jordan College and making up stories and like, they do a fantastic job of that initial scene yeah. of just introducing, this is Lyra, she's she's messy She's muddy. She she doesn't shy away from a fight and she loves to lie and she'll lie to get her anything that she wants. And that was like the perfect introduction to what I wanted to, Lyra to be. It very much gets your hopes up to have them dash for the rest of the film. But if we're talking positives, that was something for me that was like really positive. That was like, yes, they did a really good job of that very first establishing Lyra. It, that did seem to completely peter out through the rest of the film because whilst they filmed, there's like 99 scenes in the film and Dakota Blue Richards is in 97 of them or something. There's only two days where she didn't film across the whole of filming. So it's amazing how much she is in it. But it does feel like you don't get 
that initial Lyra that you meet in that first scene kind of disappears as the film goes on and as the editing becomes like hacks away a lot more a lot more of the plot and the story because it's harder to kind of follow her yeah i think as well she gets there's so many big names and big characters in the film and she gets like lost in them i think but there is a good bit where i really liked i was like oh yeah she's definitely lyra where she um I can't remember the sequence of events because it's all fucking butchered and fucked up. But like, there's a point where like she's walking with Yorick and she's like, uh, blah, blah, blah. Just like absolute chatting shit to, to Yorick. Like, I don't take any crap from anyone and I, I can tell that you don't either. And like, she's just chatting and chatting and like Yorick's like, please shut the fuck up. Just like walking along, along beside her. And that really made me think, oh yeah, this is definitely Lyra. But then like you said, it does get lost. So that makes me think like you were just alluding to that she probably did like keep that up for the film but it just got fucking butchered in the editing room so much so that it was kind of lost it seemed to me like it only apart from those two things that we've just mentioned it only kept the things that would move the plot along so like the very expositiony dialogue from lyra and things like that whereas it needed to keep more of that who is lyra as a character stuff in rather than just having her move the plot along constantly i mean the way that they cut between scenes to move the plot along was some of the most jarring editing i think i've ever seen anyway (laughs) you know we obviously have like quite a nice intro with Lyra, I tried to pinpoint the point at which I felt like the film got turned on its head and I feel like it's about one hour in. They've made some questionable decisions before that hour hour point, but it's at an hour where you're like, oh, and this has gone to shit. (laughs) So there's some like little things that kind of irked me, just like getting one of the guys from the Magisterium to be the one that pours the poison into Lord Asriel's wine and not the master because like the film was massively criticised for like overly demonising the Catholic Church and overly demonising religion, but it's like, some of the decisions they made were in order to make the magisterium a clearer baddie in the film in order to like simplify things i think and that probably did demonize religion more than they thought because making the master do it is a very different and much more complex decision it's a more complex series of events having the master try to poison lord asriel and it makes you question lord asriel a lot more and the master's motives a lot more whereas having just some random sneaky guy that looks like a Disney villain poisoning him. Yeah, I I think that they tried to streamline it as much as they could and then just fell victim to their own streamlining. I um, was reading about the director, Chris Weitz, and he was saying the aim is, this was before the film came out, so it made me quite sad. The aim is to put in the elements we need to make this movie a hit so that we can be much less compromising in how the second and third books are shot. And then the end of the... I think this is still in the Vulture article. The end of the article says it hurts that the studio lets Whites make the subtle knife in the amber spyglass how he wants to. And then I was like, womp, womp. Also, there's a fun bit of chat that I found on one of the um, classic IMDb trivia moments. Love it. Which is that Whites actually resigned from directing the movie claiming he was daunted by the technical challenges of the story. This is in 2004. In 2005, Anand Tucker was hired to replace Whites with the approval from... Philip Pullman and everything, Tucker felt that the movie's theme would be its central thing of like Lyra's search of self-discovery and for family as like the central theme of the film, which I think is much more like cutesy and wholesome and I like it. But in 2006, he resigned, uh, citing creative disagreements with New Line Cinema and White's return to direct. It's all just been like thrown together. Not thrown together because I know they did a lot of work on it, but like so disjointed and this person's writing it. Now this person is. This person's written a script. This person's directing. Now this person is. Blah, blah, blah. I know I'm stepping back a bit, but I think it's probably important to say I know that we'll get into the ending and stuff, but I think it's important to say up front 
the bit of IMDb trivia that I posted in our Discord chat after we'd finished watching the film. It says, uh, years after the film's release, director Chris White's revealed that despite him being a fan of the books, making the movie was a terrible experience for him because New Line Cinema constantly interfered. White's original script had a much slower pace, allowing for more world-building character development and exposition, what like we'd seen in that Vulture article that I just read. Studio forced him to scrap elements that weren't immediately essential to the plot and turned down the religious subtext. They also overruled several casting decisions and took over editing to get the running time under two hours, which necessitated reshoots and the rearranging of several other scenes to make the film coherent again. The most radical intervention was removing the original downbeat ending from the final cut, intending to use it as an opening of a proposed sequel, which never happened. I always had... So this is probably like a misconception that I actually had that I should have added to my assumptions at the beginning, but the first time I read the book and I knew what happened in Northern Lights and what happened at the end with Roger dying, I think we had a conversation about the film and you said to me, Roger doesn't die in the film. And I was like, what? (laughs) What the fuck? And then I didn't realise that there was actually plans to make the other two films. I thought they'd always just plan to leave it at the Golden the golden Compass and then that's it as its own standalone story. Because we've actually talked many times about how Northern Lights as a book could be its own story within itself. Yeah, there'd be like some loose ends at the end of it, but like it, it, it is very much its own story. And then the other two books, without spoilers, kind of merge into each other a bit more they flow a bit better in between each other i think and the story flows a little bit more so i thought that they'd removed roger's death because they didn't want to have a child die in such a horrible way on screen and that they weren't ever planning to do it but it sounds like from this that they were actually planning to do it in the second film which is interesting because then I read something like what i was saying earlier about chris white's trying to please the studio in the first film so they could then make the two other films like how he wanted to and then that never happened so it is quite sad that we probably would have got that I don't know if the the other two films that he would have done would have been any better but if he'd have got creative control then more creative control than he did with this one you'd think that maybe they would have been and it would have been interesting to see them you do get the impression that New Line Cinema is very much so if you watch the trailer for the film Mm. it starts with the ring the one ring from Lord of the Rings, like spinning, and then it turns into the alethiometer. And they're like, from the people that brought you Lord of the Rings, here is the golden compass. They were clearly like, they went, oh, Lord of the Rings, based on books, super successful. We're going to do it. It's a trilogy. Oh, here's Dark Materials. That's a trilogy. We'll do that. Some of the casting decisions came off the back of that as well. So originally, for the role of Yorick Bernison, they had Nonso Anosi. So he's in, you'll recognise him from, he's been in like Game of Thrones. He's been recently in, uh, he was recently cast as Butler in the Artemis Fowl film, which is also a big flop that I have a lot of feelings about. Um, <laughs> but he's a really, really brilliant actor. And he was the first choice of the director, but the studio stepped in and said, no, we want Sarah McKellen in it and we want Christopher Lee in it. And whilst Christopher Lee has quite a small role, Serena McCallum, that's a massive role. And there are a lot of times when you're listening to York and you're like, oh, Gandalf. So there's some major casting decisions that the studio just stepped in and went, nope, we want Gandalf and Saruman in this because we did Lord of the Rings and we want this to be as successful as Lord of the Rings. And you just kind of go, why? It was so weird that they had some, like, such an obsession with making it Lord of the Rings and it's like, it's not Lord of the Rings. Also such a strange choice in the trailer to have... like it's one thing to say like from the makers of lord of the rings that's fine but like to actually have the ring from lord of the rings like turn into a lithiometer that's such a fucking choice they're nothing like each other 
Lord of the Rings is most definitely not a children's film and you do get the impression that this was under quite heavy restrictions to be forced to be a children's film like we were talking about with Roger not dying and Billy Costa. They, it's interesting that they made the same decision in the TV series and the movie to make Tony Macarios Billy Costa. Totally. And keep his demon called Ratta. I think it just makes sense for streamlining casting decisions and like removing the complication of having an additional character. Fair enough. Literally, Mark Costa. Nobody's shocked that he doesn't have his demon when Lyra finds him. That's so and, weird. Like, Lyra's shocked. She's horrified. But then she takes him back to camp and nobody is shocked particularly at all. Mark Costa hugs him and is just like, we'll find your demon, don't worry. And they just kind of leave it there. That's not how it works, Mark Costa. You don't just find the demon and bring it back. Yeah, like, even if they hadn't wanted to kill him, they could have had, like, a serious moment where they've said, like, even if we find his demon, he'll never be the same again, or something. But no, they, she just, like, sweeps him up and hugs him, and we're like, oh, cool, they found him, and what, we're just supposed to assume that they're going to find his demon and everything will be okay, happy ending, la di it's a kid's film. Yeah, I completely agree. That was such a weird moment, but also I just want to call out something that I was very excited about, so... Uh, Mark Costa is played by Claire Higgins and she played Julia in Hellraiser and Hellraiser is one of my favourite horror films because it's just out of this world ridiculous. Maybe that's what we should watch at Halloween with the the Discord (laughs) group. And yeah, she plays one of the main characters and she's so great in Hellraiser because it's just out of this world ridiculous and I was so happy to see her in The Golden Compass because I've not seen her in anything since Hellraiser. I don't know if she... She's probably done other things, but it just so happens I only know her from that. And I was like, oh my God, it's Julia from Hellraiser. But then again, like, Mark Oster has like... She's in like maybe three scenes in the film. She's like barely in it. What's nice is they do once again take her further north with them as they are chased through the TV series, but she had a lot of her major scenes removed, especially in the decision to have Mark Austin not be particularly one of the prominent Egyptians that's talking a lot to Lyra. And also, Mark Austin doesn't get to have any conversations with Lyra about the fact that she was her nanny when she was, like, very, very small and none of those emotional conversations. So the fact that Lyra's revelation that Mrs. Coulter is her mother doesn't come until, like, super late in the film is another really unusual decision to have made. And I did quite enjoy, if we remove the fact of the book and you have somebody revealing that they are your mother to you in like this really dramatic moment, I'm sure that was absolute like fire to film. I'm sure it was amazing. And they do a really good job and Nicole Kidman does a really good job of it. But for someone that's read the books, Lyra not knowing that Coulter is her mother until like the very end of the film is such a weird decision because she's supposed to like know from so early in the books it just reminded me again of that fucking bit from eastenders you're not my mother <laughs> yes <I am>. Classic. <laughs> but yeah i so the bit with um i know sorry everyone we're jumping around but classic us when we're in a tv show episode we jump around loads so we're just we're just gonna carry on with these uh with these tangents and see how we go, with Mrs. Coulter revealing herself as Lyra's mum didn't hit it. Because I think I remember when we were saying in the books, we were saying it's very, it's not very dramatic when it's revealed by John Farr and Father Coram. It's kind of like during I can't remember what paragraph it is. It's during that time when there's like shitloads of dialogue and we're learning everything about. Lyra's past and Mrs. Coulter and Asriel and their relationship. So I actually thought it was quite a decent change for them to have Mrs. Coulter reveal it herself. And it's a bit more dramatic, isn't it? It kind of adds to the drama. But I agree it came a bit late in the film. And also, off the back of that, super fucking weird that Lyra's just like, 
oh, Lord Asriel's my dad then. She just knows. She just guesses. And I think it was Charlie. I think this was you. Please correct me if I'm wrong. If it was somebody else, I'm really sorry. But Charlie, when we were doing the watch along, she was like, okay, yeah, because like Lord Asriel's literally the only man, the only other man that's like of an age that could have Lyra. He must be a dad. The only other man I know. That's my dad. Speaking of Lord Asriel, oh my God, imagine casting Daniel Craig and then removing... He's literally just not in the film. I made a note of when they stopped talking about Daniel Craig. Mrs. Coulter mentions, this is at the point, they've got to Bolvanger in the weird order at which they do it. Lyra's hiding under the table, which also would not ever work because there's like dog and cat demons on the floor in the room. They'd see you under the table. It makes no sense to hide there. And Coulter says, Asriel will be arrested for heresy and sentenced to death. And then they have like a little shot that cuts to Asriel in his lab, working in his lab. And that is, I think, literally the last we see of Daniel Craig in the entire film. And that's, it's bananas. It's a, yeah, it's a shame. I mean, I'm sure he's still got his feet, but you've cut one of the major characters that has this massive moment at the end of the film down to like one introductory moment, really, which is all just the stuff that's happening in the retiring room. And we don't really see him after that. Tiny little sidebar about Daniel Craig. I've never seen a James Bond film. I actually don't think I've ever seen Daniel Craig in a film before. He was fine as Asriel. Like you said, we didn't get to spend that much time with him. I imagine he would have done a, gr- a good job at, at the end of, of being Asriel on heat, basically, when he sees like Lyra and Roger and all that kind of stuff. I imagine he would have done a good job. But I watched Knives Out yesterday. Oh my gosh, did you? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> I really liked it a lot and he's really good in that and that's the first time I've seen him in a film and he, he does like a ridiculous Texan Southern drawl I love it yeah it might yeah. not be Texan but like a southern accent at first I was like this is a bit extreme but my I did like my absolute favourite bit is when he's like this case is a donut <laughs> <laughs> just get it got me and then they just like keep rolling with the donut analogies and it's I love it it's a good it's a very good film it's not what I expected and I enjoyed it a lot <laughs> yeah it's really good I enjoyed it a lot Daniel Craig I'm sure would have done would have been a really good Asriel but you just don't get to see enough of him to make that decision oh wait no we did get one more scene with Daniel Craig when he's like hiking in the very very clean foothills and he's like, Stelmaria, which also I hate the way they say Stelmaria. Mm. Stelmaria. There's sure to be people hunting us and then immediately gets shot. It's a really odd moment. And then he has a big old fight with a bunch of people of like, probably the only ethnically diverse casting in the entire film is for the Samoyeds, which they keep saying over and over again. And we have since found out that that is, it's a bit of a slur, basically. And everyone in the film says it repeatedly and also in a really like venom filled way quite a lot. There's them and there's the Tartars and they're kind of the only brown people we'd see in the entire film. Fantasy films have a tendency to have some very, very white casting and fantasy as a genre has in its roots a lot of problematic things to do with race because of the way that they like to treat race as, oh, the diversity comes in the form of different like elves, dwarves, orcs, etc. And then they completely forget about any like actual ethnic diversity in their like human casting. The thing is with this as well is that it was made in 2007. Do better. Yeah. 2000 is, we're past the millennium guys. Like, yeah, that is uh, that trope of having people of color as the villain is so like 70s, 80s and 90s at a push. But 2007, do fucking better. Just do better. One of the things that really fucking threw me off was when Lyra gets captured 
and then ends up at Svalbard with the Bear Palace. I was like, what the fuck? Okay, so I guess in order to be able to talk about it properly, I'm going to have to kind of lay out the plot in my head. Okay, lay it out for all of us, please. So in the books, we have Lyra in Oxford. Lyra lives with Mrs. Coulter for a bit. Lyra escapes Coulter at the cocktail party, captured in throwing nets by gobblers, rescued by Egyptians, spends a bunch of time on boats, goes to Trollesund, gets Yorick his armour back. And then they're travelling to Bolvanger when they get ambushed and Lyra is stolen and taken to Bolvanger. That is where she almost gets cut away from Pan, she has all those interactions with Mrs. Coulter and rescues Roger and then they go to Svalbard. Oh no, and then the balloon crashes and she ends up in Svalbard because they're on their way actually to get to Lord Asriel who is also in Svalbard. And then from Svalbard we go to Asriel's, we have the whole thing with Azriel and Coulter and the bridge between the worlds and Roger dying, RIP Roger. That's kind of the basic order of the book. For some reason in the film, they were like, okay, so we'll kind of go in the correct order. Oxford is fine. Mrs. Coulter's is fine. She runs away a little bit early, but fair enough. Jumps to the conclusion that Coulter is a gobbler very, very quickly and just happens to spot Roger and Billy's name on Happens to have a handy little list that says everyone's name on it. Fuck's sake, that probably made me laugh. I was like, you could have fucking found a better way of doing that. You just got to get your elbow in somehow. You've got to like <laughs> engineer this somehow in a very clumsy manner. So she runs away from Coulter, gets captured in the nets, rescued by the Egyptians who turn out to be more like pirates than anything else. Oh um, God. <laughs> Let's go back to that point. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then from there, they do go to Trollesund. They do get Yorick's armor back. That was relatively well done, I thought. And then for some reason, on their way to Bolvanger, Lyra gets kidnapped and... I suspect what happened here is they just completely changed the voiceover and the subtitles because it is, she's captured by hunters who are speaking in a currently unidentified language. I know from researching and looking on the internet that the Tartars are speaking Russian, but the hunters that capture Lyra, we're not 100% sure what language they speak. Someone was asking like, is it Finnish? Is it Norwegian? Like, we're not sure. And it's hard to make out because it is very fast and there's also like lots of atmospheric sounds. So if anybody speaks that language and knows or knows if they've like made up a language or what language they're speaking I'd love to find out and instead of taking her to Bolvanger they just take her to the Bear King for no reason particularly whatsoever but like the thing is they were they were already on their way to Bolvanger like it surely makes sense for them to take her to Bolvanger whatever who knows so instead of going to <laughs> instead of going to Bolvanger she goes to the ice palace of not Joffa Ragnarsson, but Ragnar something, Stolason. Um, And then has all the amazing epic bear fight and all that kind of stuff, whatever. And then Yorick is just like, at the end of that, she gives him a hug and he's like, now I will take you to Bolvanger. And they just go to Bolvanger. But instead of having the like rickety bridge trope scene that is classically cinematically iconic, so of course they felt they had to keep it in, instead of having that leading to Asriel, where Lyra has to go alone, Yorick just like leaves her halfway to Bolvanger at this bridge and is like, I'll be back. She just has to go over this bridge, goes to Bolvanger, has like all her Bolvanger interactions and runs away and escapes and then gets cap like it's it's really hard to describe <laughs> because I wonder uh, if the Rickety Ice Bridge was originally filmed to be Lyra going to Azriel, and then when the studio got involved they just re-edited it into that sequence. And then that also makes me think that the end sequence where 
Lyra and Roger like escaping the balloon, I imagined that was to be for them to then for her to fall out of and go to Svalbard and they had to maybe reshoot the interiors where uh, Lyra's saying the very end bit with Roger, you know, where she's like, oh, we've got to take this to Azriel and like, I want to learn about those other worlds. And Roger's like, I'll come with you, blah, blah, blah. I imagine that was probably a reshoot. Definitely. Yeah. So instead of being in the right order, it goes Bear Palace, Bolvanger. Bolvanger seems to be the finale and they just kind of finish the film with them floating around in a balloon for no reason whatsoever. In a giant, weirdly mechanical metal silver balloon. And it's got two balloons. That did not, I did not like that. They were just going really hard on the like, ooh, steampunk, futuresque, not futuresque, modern day vibes. Like some of the establishing shots of like London and stuff were quite interesting, but were very odd as well. That's kind of the basic order of where the film goes to shit. I can't remember what you were saying before I jumped into trying to explain why the film is so garbled and jumbled. <laughs> no, I think I was on that point, but you did mention the Egyptians and I think we should talk about the Egyptians. In all honesty, I see how they went from the Egyptians described in the books to pirate just because it's a very lazy jump, but mm. because they like live on the water and that's very much part of their characters and their personalities and just their people as a whole are very water-based and the fact that they're quite when we spoke to Jill about the tv show we kind of said that they're quite lovingly haphazard and they obviously have a, a lower income and they make their own they get by on their own with all those things i can see how they then jump to let's put them on a pirate ship i don't like it but i can see how they made the jump it for me ruins the philosophy of the egyptians being a people that are spread far and wide and have all of their interpersonal family dynamics and like smaller groups that can then come together as a mass community for something like a buy-in roping and the idea of the beautiful scene that is the buy-in roping and all of those lovely like warm homely boats like come together in this like amazing community thing is just kind of lost and i wonder if maybe there were scenes to do with that that got cut and they cut straight to the Egyptians have hired a boat to travel because they obviously do have to hire a boat to travel and there are scenes of that in the book. Maybe they just cut straight to it, but it did very much feel like the Egyptians went from having like a canal boat type vibe in that very first establishing shot where Lyra's having a mud fight to we're basically pirates on a pirate ship. And obviously the costume in and the eyeliner and the hair all points to pirate. Jim Carter. Jim Carter as John Farr. So if anybody has watched Downton Abbey... He's casting the butler in Downton Abbey and it's just so bloody brilliant to see him playing this like pirate king vibed character. He has eyeliner, he has like a little cute little face tattoo, he's got earrings. It's 100% not how I envision John Farr. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very Hagrid it's, vibes as well. It's a Hagrid vibes. It's a treat to see. It's very Lord, very Lord of the Rings dwarf vibes. Yeah. Is, again, I think a very New Line Cinema moment. <laughs> yeah, definitely. He has his hammer rant moment. Did you notice he the does. funny little hammer that he's holding while he's ranting? Yeah, uh, he does. He, he doesn't go, he doesn't do the full hammer rant that we hate, but he does do the first bit. I recognise that he does say it for some bits verbatim from the book, because you've read that speech out so many times that it's kind of like ingrained in my head. But he doesn't go into the like gross bit of it that we didn't like. That would be a thirsty. Yeah. His thirsty hammer. (laughs) God. John Farr was interesting casting. I do quite like Jim Carter as John Farr. Some of the costuming and design decisions that made the whole Egyptian community feel way more piratey than they needed to be. Perhaps, like, 
put a dampener on that for me. Same with Fardacorum. I did not feel that connection with Fardacorum. No. I think they tried. They, they had like some scenes with him and Lyra, like when they go and meet Yorick for the first time. They tried, but it just didn't come through. And I think, again, that's probably because of the fast pace of the film. They didn't have time to properly establish that relationship. They didn't. He felt very much like an exposition delivery machine. Like, he was there to tell Lyra how the alethiometer works, which, by the way, the alethiometer. (laughs) Oh, that's a whole other thing. The fact that it's established in the cold open exposition Serafina Peckler moment with Eva Green, where there's... Same if there's only one alethiometer left. Well, that's not true. Um, it's just not a thing and saying there's only one person in the world that can read it also not true I think it's really oversimplifies something that didn't need to be oversimplified they could just say it's very hard to read and Lyra has a knack for it it very much implies that Lyra is herself in some way very magical to say that she's the only one that can read it mm. and then the dusty moments of oh, reading God. it are no, don't like that at all <laughs> On that alethiometer point, like we've said many times, they had to, or for some reason they felt like they had to keep it under that two hour mark so loads of stuff got cut. But it just kind of reads as it being dumbed down. It just feels like they're dumbing it down for the audience, like the stuff with the alethiometer, like there only being one in the world and only one person that can read it because they don't, they didn't have the time to like go into actually there are six and actually you can read it but you need the books and all that kind of stuff. They probably didn't intentionally do this but it just feels like they're dumbing everything down. The same with like changing your for Ragnarsson to Ragnar Stilson just because they didn't wanted it, they didn't want it to be too close to Yorick. If you'd have had the time to establish a story properly then you wouldn't have needed to do that and it just feels like a large majority of the people that went to see that film would have read the books and you just feel like a dummy. You're just like, I- I've read this book and I understand it and you're just making it, you're just stripping it down to its bare bones and you're making me feel like a fucking stupid idiot because you don't think that I would understand that there are six Lithiomis in the world and that a bear can, a bear, two bears can have similar names. Two bears from a very similar area that is like a close-knit community that probably has very like... It's like if you had two characters called Anna and Annie and you were like, I don't think people will be able to tell the difference between Anna and Annie and it's like... They're just different names, like, whatever. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I think one of the beautiful joys of Philip Pullman is that he doesn't talk down to his readers. Reading it as a kid, I felt very clever reading those books and feeling like I could understand them because whilst he doesn't dumb it down, he also doesn't deliberately get overly obtuse or the essential things are very, it's very clear what's essential. And if you do skim past some of the geography when you're reading it as a 12 year old, it's not gonna kill you, like it's fine. Whereas this has just gone, we can't do any of the assuming that our watchers are able to decipher things. We're just gonna lay it all out really, really plainly. Just even just explaining demons within the first five minutes. First five minutes being like, oh, your demon is... It was quite a nice bit of scripting, I guess, being like, oh, in your world, your soul lives within you or something. And in ours, our soul walks beside us in the form of an animal. Like, cool. We didn't really need it explaining necessarily. You could have interestingly put it into the dialogue somehow. It just, it upset me. What you said about Philip Pullman and like not dumbing stuff down for an audience and just assuming that people will understand... Reminds me a lot of Joss Whedon. Uh, As much as Joss Whedon is a problematic person, uh, he does the same with all of his worlds, so like Buffy, Angel, etc. He always assumes that the people watching will get what he is putting out there, and it's the same with Philip Pullman, and I think that's a really important thing to do. And obviously you have to have a certain talent to do that, because you can't just write a load of shit and expect people to get it. A lot of thought does have to go into that, because you have to think about, am I giving the reader or watcher enough 
to go on here or am I holding back? And, uh, and like the film just went too far the other way. It's the point at which I think they must have decided this is a children's film, so we have to explain everything. But some of the explaining mo- removes some of the magic for me, definitely. Can we talk about Lee Scoresby? We can. Ooh. This casting heavily influenced my vision of Lee Scoresby and it's probably what made me question Lin-Manuel Miranda as a Scoresby's choice because I did very much enjoy his portrayal of Lee Scoresby. Obviously being a Lynn stan and loving Lynn's interpretation of Lee, which is so interesting because I must be one of the few people that watched the TV show before the film and had my first my first experience of those characters on screen being completely different to most of the other people who would maybe picture Dakota Blue Richards as Lyra and Sam Elliott as Lee Scoresby. I got Daphne Keane and Lin-Manuel Miranda and like it's so interesting and I was never attached to Lin as Lee. Obviously I really loved his portrayal but I wasn't about to be like nobody else can play him. I was just like I really like how Lin's done this and I really really loved Sam Elliott as Lee. I thought he was great. He was so good and Kathy Bates as Hester although she only had like one or two lines. I bloody love Kathy Bates. Me too, but I feel like they, she could have been used more. Again, maybe that was a victim of the Harsh cuts. editing. Yeah. But yeah, Lee was great. I think he really established a great relationship with Lyra. I think the relationship between the two of them was probably the strongest in the film. They had that banter that we saw in the, the TV rapport. series. Yeah, yeah, they had that rapport. And I think it, it's mostly down to Sam Elliott's effortless swag, in a way. That like Texan yeah. cowboy charm. He did it so well that I think their bond is really apparent on screen and yeah I really did like it a lot yeah I really liked it I really liked the little interaction we did see between Lee and Hester was lovely like Mm -hmm. I love Kathy Bates as that casting and I think we were perhaps robbed of a few longer Lee scenes but again you're it's trying to pack a lot of stuff into a film that they decided for some reason had to be under two hours a lot of the casting decisions were brilliant let's talk about Eva Green as Serafina Pekula I actually really quite enjoyed the way that the films portrayed the witches with their cloud pine branches with their bows and arrows there is a moment when all the witches are flying overhead and it has the sound and the vibe of Dementors drink for Harry Potter Dementors Dementors but the silky robes is 100% what I imagined talking about like being bound in silks and it is very floaty, it is very cool, but again, we just don't get to see a lot of Serafina. No Kaiser. No no Kaiser, there's just an explanation, my demon goes far away, so we never see him, <laughs> goodbye. But I agree with you in the sense that I think the witches overall, as an overall character, from like costume to acting to CGI on the flying and the Cloudpine, the best overall, I think, of them as characters, of how I imagine them in the book, they're like the closest, I think, to, to that, and I think they did a good job. And Eva Green is so intense, and I love She's that really intensity good. for Serafina Pekula. And there was a bit where she got she got all, her entire thigh out, which we all enjoyed in the Discord group. <laughs> She's like stood there with her silks. It was kind of like the Angelina Jolie like fucking dress split up one leg. And I was like, oh my God, you get that thigh out, Serafina. We'd love to see it. <laughs> and it makes the dress a little bit more practical as well, because otherwise she probably couldn't move as easily. <laughs> Very true. Oh my God, can we fucking talk about that little monkey prick? Oh my God. Let's have a whole moment to chat about Mrs. Coulter because we've spoken about how we don't hate Nicole Kidman. I thought I did. When I first watched the film a lot younger, I was just so mad that she wasn't a brunette. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because... Why Why does everybody have to be blonde in Hollywood? I think no. was my like, main reductive point that I had 
to make about it. I was just like, why Why do you have to make a blonde? Can't we just have a brilliant brunette, please? It made me kind of overlook her performance, perhaps, or perhaps as a younger child, I couldn't relate to it as hard. Whereas I do think she had a really lovely intensity and a lot of her, like, sticky sweetness was done very well. Some of the costuming was quite on the nose. It was like, gold, gold, gold. Yeah, everything was gold. Apparently, the scene where she slaps the monkey was written in by Philip. He wanted to have that included, which I love. Don't you feel like us and uh, Philip are on the same page? That was my favourite Mrs. Coulter moment. I was to know it was written by Philip. I was like, yes, Philip. Yeah, it was. That was a great moment. The fact that she had that portrait of herself and the monkey in the house is so fucking funny to me. Brilliant. But yeah, I think she did a good job. I thought her and Lyra could have been a bit more connected. But then again, it's because we didn't have that time. They're fucking... Little monkey prick. It's so shiny. Why is it so shiny? It's really difficult, I guess. Like, there's not a lot of gold monkeys that exist in nature. And the choice for the TV series to go with the blue-faced monkeys was really good because it is such an unusual looking creature. I'm not entirely sure what kind of monkey the golden monkey in this film was based on, but he had like a really unusual little mustache. Oh, the mustache. His face was like a little bit too human. He was very unusual looking. And then they nailed it with him me having intense feelings of dislike towards him because the aggressive way in which he like picks up and like holds Pam under the table when her and uh, when Lyra first meets Coulter is weird but yeah the intensity of the moment between Coulter and the monkey was so great the intensity of the fight between the monkey and Pam as well Mrs Coulter's wearing a shoulder bag in your own home like that whole little fight scene I thought worked quite well I did quite enjoy that but it's probably the most faithful to the books as well like the moments that I enjoyed the most are the ones that are faithful to the books or that Philip wrote so (laughs) yeah exactly I would just like to call out that and I can't remember who said it but in our watch along somebody said that that monkey could be in a shampoo commercial and that's so fucking true because its hair was just so shiny so shiny that monkey is not worth it (laughs) no uh a lot of interesting costuming decisions from Mrs. Coulter as well. Like the gold dress, they were very into gold across the whole thing. Every time that there was a metal involved, they just made it gold, which was a decision, I guess. <laughs> I'm not, I wasn't wild about it. And I remember when we were chatting to Joel Collins about the production design on the TV series, he was saying a big impression that a lot of people had of the film was why is everything gold? And they made a deliberate choice to step away from that and have a lot more like worn down metals and rusted things and aluminium and more industrial materials because everything is very gold in the film. Like the rims of all the wine glasses are gold. Everything that is a metal that somebody could touch is gold. For some reason, the Magisterium live in a gold lined greenhouse, which is a whole other thing. Like the shots of inside the Magisterium, it's just a massive greenhouse with like one chair in it. So what are your thoughts on our beloved Yorick Bernison? I struggled to separate some of the voice acting from Gandalf in my head. It is just so very Serena McKellen. I enjoyed a lot of Yorick. I thought that they did quite a good job with a lot of it, but some of the script writing perhaps ruined him for me a little bit because he's very abrupt. He's essentially used as a physical vehicle for a lot of the film. And so his character doesn't get a whole ton of development. We are kind of robbed of that scene of Lyra and Pan where Lyra's trying to approach Yorick or Pan's trying to approach Yorick and Lyra's like gripping onto the gatepost. And some of the moments between Lyra and Yorick were perhaps dumbed down a little where Lyra just looks at the leaf the almost and just goes, oh, I can find your armor for you. And then Yorick's like, cool, I'm forever in your debt. And that's kind of it. 
a lot of the trellis and stuff was quite good. My One of my big bugbears with the film itself was everything is very, very clean the whole way through. And we have that with Yorick and we have that with the bear fight as well, where despite the fact that we do get the fab moment where Yorick slaps Yoffa's jaw off or, ra- or Ragnar? Ragnar's jaw off, there's no blood, there's no mud, there's no filth. He's very white for a polar bear. Polar bears can be quite yellow. It, it's Everything is very, very clean a lot of the time. And I noticed it with the costumes as well. And that was, I know it shouldn't be so much of a bugbear for me, but it really is. I don't know. How did you feel about Yorick? Mm, I, I feel a lot of the same things as you. I feel like we didn't get that lovability from Yorick. They, how much we love him in the books, it, it wasn't there. Like you said, he was just kind of used as like a, a vehicle. I thought that as much as I love Sir Ian McKellen, I don't think it was the right choice. I feel like he was... Because obviously Sir Ian McKellen is very RP and it was just a bit too posh for Yorick. Yeah. I wasn't feeling that like vibe of Yorick at all like in terms of the voice acting. I really liked the bear fight i thought that it was great I, it was pretty much exactly how i imagined it in the book they almost went for want of a better phrase shot for shot in the book almost with ragnar's armor coming undone on the belly and hitting uh, yorick's paw and then yorick faking it that was by the book i also thought that ragnar had a weird face very human his eyes were too close together it was a very animated disney villain bear in fact i think it reminded me of a bear from a disney film I can't think which one though. Yeah, it was super like Disney villainy. That's probably one of my favourite bits in the film when they go to uh, Svalbard. I thought they did it pretty well. I thought all the bears looked pretty decent as well. Loved Ragnar's armour with like the spiky helmet. Yeah. So over the top. I feel like they put a lot of effort into the, that bear fight and they were very keen to show it off. As a, beside from the fact that it should have been a bit bloodier. In having that bear fight, I guess that's why Yorick is just immediately like, let's go to Volvanger because... Roger should have been there for some of the bear fight, surely, or for the aftermath of the bear fight. Because Yorick brings him along and leaves him outside after the balloon crash. Oh, yeah. The the way that the film is chopped up really makes me struggle to, like, think through it narratively because my head is so stuck in the book and the order of the things in the book that when the fact that the film messes it up gets really confusing to talk about. Still talking about Yorick, but moving to the final battle at Bolvanger, I liked that they added in that they held him down with the ropes. I thought that was cool. It reminded me of the most traumatic Disney film ever, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh my which gosh. It's so traumatising and horrendous. They do that to Quasimodo and it's horrific. Do not watch that film, people, if you haven't seen it. It's got some great songs and it's a great film, but you will cry and it'll be horrible and it's horrendous. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just a clever way to incapacitate Yorick for a little bit so that Lee could have his moment of like shooting the ropes down. But yeah, that whole fight at, at Bolvanger, I think it was Jess in our patron watch along that said this, but I kind of zoned out. And I think they said as well, oh, I zoned out, but like that was the last scene. I zoned out thinking we'd go and see Asriel. So I was like, oh, I can zone out for like five minutes. And then it was the end. So abrupt. It makes it feel so abrupt. And I zoned out twice. I zoned out when we watched it. I zoned out when I watched it by myself. So like, I feel like I probably missed a lot from that fight scene. I did like the bit where Lyra steps in between them and Spitz. I was like, yes, Lyra. This is the thing. There's some really lovely like Lyra being Lyra moments when she steps up to the Tartar guards with all their scary walls and is just like, go on in and spits at him and it's just like that's that's a really lovely Lyra moment and Dakota Blue Riches did a great job of it but I was so jarred and thrown off by the fact that the fight scene was so long again the fight scenes in Lord of the Rings are way too long like way too they have 10 minute battle sequences that 
don't progress the story in any way whatsoever. And that it felt like one of those, um, which I bloody love the Lord of the Rings films, don't get me wrong. But it felt very much like that. It was a very like, oh, we're going to do the thing with the big battle scene. Except for because it's a kid's film, there won't be mud, there won't be blood, there won't be gore. We'll just have people's demons exploding into like sparkly wisps of dust, which... I guess visually drew the comparison that is like a conclusion we may all come to at some point, which is that like demons are intrinsically linked to dust and are made of dust. And therefore when they die, maybe they would turn into dust. But dust is supposed to be invisible. We're supposed to not be able to see it. So why when people's demons die, do they burst into sparkly light? It really annoys me. (laughs) And it's very much like, oh, here's a big fight scene and we're just going to have CGI sparkles popping off everywhere. And whilst we know that is people dying in a battle, it's not exactly... It's a very sanitised version of a battle. I think that's one of the reasons why I zoned out. And also, just for me personally, like if I'm reading a battle scene with a central character that I like, so like Lyra, Bolvanger in the books and things like that, then I'm into it and the bear fights. But on screen, if I see like a battle, even in when I was a kid watching like Harry Potter and stuff like that, drink, I just said, out. it's just not what I, what I like to see on screen. And I know that obviously a lot of people love that kind of like action. That's why I don't really like action films because I just zone out. I need the character development and I need to latch onto a character before I'm invested in a battle scene that they might be involved in. It's why I struggle to watch Marvel films because they are predominantly action fight scenes and you know that none of the characters are ever in actual peril because there's like another sequel film that's already been announced that has that character in it. So why am I watching this film? Like, I know that a bad thing is going to happen. They'll survive. They'll be in the next film because they have to keep selling merch about them. Like, it's a very cynical way of looking at it, but I just, I struggle to care when I know the character has to survive and they're in a fight scene. Like, I want, I want some real peril, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Because otherwise it doesn't affect the story unless it somehow advances their character. And that's how it very much felt because then suddenly the film is over. They fly off in the balloon and that's just kind of it. The ending is a fucking shocking travesty. (laughs) In a watch along, it ended and everyone's like, what? How is that the end? Even me, I'd never seen it before, obviously, but I knew that Roger wasn't going to die, but I at least thought we were going to get up to, like, Azriel's. I personally thought in my head we were still going to get up to, like, Azriel's house and be on where the bridge is going to be to the next world. But maybe Roger just didn't die. Like, maybe there was another reason why the, like, energy was released and the bridge was made. Like, yeah. I thought that was going to be it, but it just ends with them in the balloon. They don't even go. Again, robbed of, like, scenes. They definitely, if you look on the internet, you can find some scenes where people have pieced together storyboards with concept art with some of the shots that they had filmed. So there is footage of Daniel Craig interacting with Dakota Blue Ridge, where he's like, no, I didn't send for you, and then spots Roger in the background and all this kind of stuff. There, that footage is there. There's footage of Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig having a kiss in front of a so like, in the trailer. big old light. There's a lot of that stuff in the trailer. Apparently, there's a lot of that stuff included in cutscenes in the video game, which Faye bought, and we're totally going to play. But yeah, the way that it stopped so suddenly, and we didn't even get to see Azrael again... Like, poor Daniel Craig, he probably acted his heart out in some of those scenes, and we just don't I mean, get to see them. He probably got a fucking pretty paycheck, he'll be fine. Oh god, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it means that our last scene with Nicole Kidman, our last scene with Nicole Kidman is, she rescues Lyra from the indecision machine, which I really do like their indecision machine at Bolvanger. Like it, I don't, it's an abhorrent contra- contraption, but like, the design of it is quite cool, and I enjoy that Pan and Lyra can see each other, and it's very much just like a wire mesh cage. That whole scene is pretty good. 
the way it like suddenly shoots into slow motion as Nicole Kidman is running to press the button to release Lyra from the machine and the whole thing with Mrs. Coulter and Lyra and when Mrs. Coulter is trying to like get into the tin with the spy fly and look in and there's a lovely little shot from inside the tin out at Coulter and her demon. Spyfly comes out and then Nicole Kidman does the most oh Hollywood fall to the floor anybody has ever done. I it's almost it so as dramatic much. as Lady Gaga on the Met Gala steps. Oh my God. Beautiful. <laughs> I love it so much. It's such a great fall. And then she just seems to never get up again. She, that's it. She's dead. They're She's like, done. The next thing we see of her is some station employees dragging her out of the building when Lyra explodes the station. And that's it. By Coulter. Done. She's done. It's just, I think it's the fact that with by removing that last scene, we just have no conclusion with any of the characters. You're left feeling really unfulfilled. There is no closure whatsoever in the film. Yeah. And they try to create some closure by being like, there's going to be another film. And Lyra's like, we're going to save the world, Roger and Pan and me. Like, we're going to do it. And then she lists all the characters that we've met. <laughs> And she's like, me and Yorick Bernison and Lee Scoresby and Serafina Pecola and John Farr. And she just lists all the characters just to, at the end of the film, just to be like, remember why you loved the books? Here's all the characters. You can see them again if you please, please watch this film and give us more money. Poor Roger, he just wants to go home. And Lyra's like, yeah, we can go home. After we've done all this stuff and then lists it. And Roger's like, what? No. Casting decision for Roger, I really enjoyed. Ben Walker, there's a great little behind the scenes interview with him. And he's this proper little, like, scrappy little London lad. And he's like, the thing about people, Damon's, oh. <laughs> is they, they're animals and they can change into anything. Oh <laughs> my just, God. It's adorable. They went for like a real Neville Longbottom type drink again with the Roger casting. I really enjoyed it. He's very cute. He's very scrappy. You can imagine him always just having like slightly sticky fingers from eating a jam sandwich or something earlier that day and just being a little bit of a mess and running around after Lyra. And I really, I did enjoy his casting. It's a shame he didn't get more moments. And we were robbed of some moments of Lyra in the station plotting her escape, which we know were filmed because some of them are included in cutscenes in the video game, apparently. With Roger, they definitely kept that image of whether they kept the actual image of Ben Walker and wanted to like kind of repurpose that and find someone similar for the TV show, or they just had an idea of what they wanted Roger to look like in the TV show, but they are very similar in their yeah. like general Lewin. vibe and Is looks. It Lewin? Yeah. Lewin Lloyd, yeah. Speaking of, we've talked about Roger, we've talked about so many of the characters, we haven't talked about Freddie Highmore voicing Pantalaemon and all oh. of the lovely pan animation because I thought I remembered the demons being a bit rubbish. And actually, whilst the animation has dated, there's some really lovely little moments with Pan. Yeah, there is. The voice of Pan sounds very much like the voice of Pan in the TV show. They're very similar. I guess just like earnest little boy voices <laughs> yeah. sound the same. I think my favourite pan bit is when she sat on the table having lunch or dinner with Mrs. Coulter back at Jordan College and Mrs. Coulter mentions going north and he's like, it's cold up there. And he changes from being a little like brown ermine to being a little white one. And it's That's so cute. cute. Yeah, oh. he has like a, a few, some lovely moments in that ermine shape where like his little ears will flick or his little head will look up. And it's very sweet. There's a lovely bit where Lyra's looking at some kind of contraption on a table and Pan like peers through one of the magnifying glasses and his head goes oh. big. And it's very sweet. And they did a really good job of some lovely moments with Pan. And like when Lyra's approaching... Uh, in the Lost Boy chapter, basically, when I was approaching the shed, 
uh, to find a demonless Billy Costa, and Pan is like gri- gripping onto her, and they've it gets a little bit uncanny at times because they've maybe over animated his face as a cat, but there's some really lovely like emotion there between the characters that was done quite well. So Pan has some really really strong moments. The demons are better than I remember them being. I think that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> uh, Star Maria doesn't. She doesn't talk, does she? I don't think. Does she, she have a like, voice? two or three lines again oh, i imagine she? a lot of them were cut by cutting the entire asriel's lab sequence we've lost a lot of time with daniel craig and Kristen scott thomas who is the voice of Star maria that is pretty shitty actually isn't it it's probably the majority of her lines would have been in the house up on svalbard can we get right to the end and talk about the song that's in the credits oh my goodness we sure can i am shooketh it's so shit so <laughs> Everyone in the group, like in the Discord group, was like, oh my god, the song. And I was like, obviously I have no idea because I've never seen the film. We'd already like paused it. We were like done with the film. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh my god, the song. And it's called Lyra and it's by Kate Bush. And I am so upset because I love Kate Bush. And everyone in the group was like, oh my god, this song's shit. And I think it was Eliana that was like, this is Kate Bush. I'm like, are you fucking joking? I fucking love Kate Bush and this is so shit. It's just so bad. And like, I hate saying it. I hate saying it. I I always hate going so far into saying that I hate something. So you know that somebody's created that and, and like, it's a bit hard. hard on it, yeah. But it's so shit. <laughs> I'm so mad about it. That is not the Kate Bush that I know and love. There's one line that I appreciate from it because the song basically is just like, Lyra, a lot. It just says the word Lyra a lot. But then it's like, I think there's a line that's like, Lyra, her soul walks beside her. And I was like, that's nice. That's cute. That's poetic. It very much illustrates what a demon is. It's cute. But no, the rest of the lines are like, Lyra, her face full of grace. Lyra's not graceful. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. And I think it, it would have been, it might have been Sophie that said in the group, but they said that Kate Bush only had like 10 days to write and record it. So that might be a bit of an explanation, but I'm honestly so mad about it. I just love Kate Bush so much and it could have been so much better. It's a classic, like, so you know when you've watched a Disney film and then you get to the end of it and they take one of the Disney songs that was perfectly fine recorded as a cast recording in the studio and they've gotten some random pop star to cover it and it's always shit. It's always, like, weirdly synthy and they've taken a song that was lovely and full of, like, character and heart and they've just made it. I'm sorry whoever did the song at the end of Moana, but why? Ah, uh, Alessia, Cara. And then I always think of Christina Aguilera doing uh, reflections for Mulan and also... Demi Lovato, love you Demi Lovato, she did like go for Frozen, I was like meh, I, I'm not a fan of this. I'm not here for it, I'm not here for like taking a perfectly good song that fits in a film and is what it is and then just like popping it up just so you can play it again in the outro, just play it again in the outro. It was a good enough song as it was, why did you need to get a random pop star to cover it? Like why? <laughs> what do you think about costuming? Because I quite liked Lyra's outfits in the sense of like her overalls and when she was in Oxford they were very similar to what we see in the tv show actually like her little pinafore dress things like that I really liked that it was then when we started moving north I wasn't a massive fan of her furs they didn't seem very practical for what was happening yeah there's one moment in the north where I was like I quite like that costume but it was purely because the cut of the coat that she's wearing when she goes to meet Ragnar slash Yoffa. It's just like that cut of coat that it just makes you look like a really small child. And they did a really good job of being like, this is a child. She is so small and these bears are so big. And there's something about just the proportions of that costume that I really, really liked. 
And yeah, I appreciate, I really enjoyed all of her like pinafores and overalls and stuff. They were really lovely and that's quite timeless and I can see why they've chosen to have her wear a lot of those in the TV series as well. It's very timeless and it feels very Lyra and I really like it. The costuming for the Egyptians was very odd. They enjoyed like a brocaded fabric and they enjoyed putting really odd little hats on a lot of the kids. They seemed to scrap halfway through the film putting hats on kids in weird ways. Apart from with Lyra. Lyra with has her a really bonnets. choice selection of really weird hats and bonnets that oh my God. make her look like a creepy doll. But yeah, some of the Egyptian costuming was a little bit odd for me. They use a lot of like brocaded fabric. It's part of what lent their like piratey feel. They bloody love to put Asriel in a bit of golden tweed. Love a bit of tweed, yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of tweed going on. There was a lot of um a lot of gold going on. Colter had a lot of gold. So much gold. That gold dress. They bloody loved filming that moment with Nicole Kidman walking into the Great Hall of Jordan College in that gold dress. They were like, this is it. This is cinematic gold, people. (laughs) We've done it. I love Lee Scoresby's costume. The fact that you don't even think about it and that for me, Lee Scoresby is like a very complete character that I don't even think about necessarily what he's wearing means that they've done it right. I can't even tell you what he was wearing. Can't remember. Exactly. It was like a little cute little, like almost like a little three-piece suit, but it felt very Texan. He had his hat. Maybe it's just the hat. The hat did it for me. (laughs) I just love the hat. I just love it. The choice to make everything in Bolvanger. All of the nurses are wearing pink and like little bonnets as well. And all of the children are wearing blue pajamas that i quite enjoyed that it felt very like regimented and quite surreal but again my main problem with all of the costuming everything was too clean why did all the egyptians wear clothes that looked pieced together and interesting but none of them looked worn none of them looked like they've been patched or anything like that they just looked everything looked really new and crisp and like lyra's been to the bear palace lyra's been to all these places and she shows up at bolvanger completely clean when she's been on the road for like months or weeks or whatever, like hiking and sweating and camping and all of this stuff, why is she so crisp and clean? Why are the bears so? I just want. I just like it when things get dirty, you know, Faye. <laughs> Me too. Oh, oh my god! I totally just flash back to a thing that I wanted to talk to you about. Lyra's interaction with Seraphina Pekula on the boat when Seraphina Pekula asks a literal child to prove she could read the alethiometer. She's like, okay, who on this boat did I, uh, was my lover? Who did I fuck? Oh my God. Yeah. It's It's so strange. This is a child you're asking this question. Like, get some sense of appropriate, like, there's so many questions you could ask. Yeah, that is so weird. It's just such an inappropriate question. I think it was to sub in for the witch's console, who we never get to meet, because it's they just completely scrap the witch's console and get Serafina to do all the witch's console's exposition because I think she tells them about Yorick, doesn't she? Yeah. She said that, I think she has something like, there's somebody there that, that can help you or something like that. And then Lee gives more of the information on Yorick as well. So they do an interesting job of divvying up the roles of the characters that have been completely cut to other people. But I am sad we never get to meet Kaiser. And it is really bloody weird that Serafina asks the child who she shagged. Think of a different question. Yeah, you could have literally asked her anything. It was a way of shoehorning in that plot line of the fact that Serafina and Vardacorum had that relationship without having to actually allow them to have any kind of conversation or interaction that involved writing a script with chemistry. Sorry about it. I recognise that so many for so many people, the film will have been their first introduction to the books. And a lot of people might really enjoy it for that reason. I know for a fact my dad has not read the books, but has seen the film. And quite enjoyed the film because I think it perhaps comes off as like a complex and interesting world that you'd like to see more of. If you haven't read the books and you know that it is much more 
much more complex and interesting in the books. So I don't want people to kind of, who really love the film, to feel like we've just come in here and shit all over the film. There were a lot of aspects of it that I appreciated. And most, a majority of the performances, I really enjoyed. I think it was just a shame that it's a victim of really harsh heavy-handed editing that did it absolutely no justice yeah exactly as you just said a lot of the things that are wrong with the film are not the actual things that you see on screen so it's not like the acting or the cgi or the sets or the costumes all of that's really good it's they are a victim of what the studio did to it afterwards and i think that if we'd had that original cut then we probably would have enjoyed it a lot better because i think the ending really taints it for everyone i think you get to that ending and it doesn't have the ending that we know and you're just like, well, this is shit. If there are people out there that really love it, then that's really great. But as a work of fiction from a world that we know and love so well, from a book that we've just finished reading, as a standalone film, it's not good. As an adaptation, it's not good. And as a film, it's not great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, in both aspects, it's not good. But because obviously a lot of it's steeped in nostalgia as well. It came out in 2007. That's a long time ago now. It's 13 years ago. A lot of people will have watched it when they were young or growing up. And those films that you watch when you're younger, growing up, whether they're good or not, stick with you. And that's fair enough. But for me, coming to it from as an adult, I'm like, hell to the no. I don't think I'll be watching it again. Twice is enough. Yeah, our, our partners both watched the film, having not read the books, but having been subjected to a lot of the TV show, subjected to, they enjoyed it, whatever, were genuinely shocked at how bad it was. Because having never read the books, they were at least expecting to understand a lot of what was happening. And whilst the, it felt like the film was spoon-feeding you information, it also felt like the complexity was pushed into really short spaces of time. So you were expected to absorb a lot of information in a way that felt very contrived and exposition-y, in a way that became irritating quite quickly, I think, for people that hadn't read the books and haven't or didn't watch the TV show as closely as we did, perhaps. I, I don't know, having said that, if you enjoy it, you enjoy it. I don't, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to yuck anybody's yum. I don't want to, if they really love it, I don't want to. Well, I mean, if you've listened this far and you love it, you're probably really mad at us because we've picked it apart. No, but... because every, <laughs> everyone has their own opinions. We're not yucking anyone's yum. We're not saying that everyone should dislike it. If you like it, then that's great. And I'm glad that you have this film that you enjoy. But for me personally, I do not like it and I will not be watching it again. Like, I'm not judging anyone for liking it. That's great to have that. But yeah, for me, not a fan. Absolutely. I think because I'd watched it and I knew that I didn't like it and it has this bad reputation of being an awful film, I'd kind of, in the past months while we've been recording the podcast, I think I'd kind of started to put some rose-tinted glasses on in relation to it because I was like, maybe it's not as bad as I remember. I think what's happened is the visuals of the film were seeping into my reading of the book and I completely forgot about some of the decisions that were made with the film that made me angry. Like, I remembered that Roger didn't die, I remembered some of the aspects of it, but I completely forgot that they had butchered and rearranged the entire second half of the film. And so, I think watching the film for the first hour or so, while things were still in the right order, and think the editing wasn't overly unusual, I was having an okay time. And I was like, this is interesting, it's a cute adaptation, some of the characters are being done really great justice, like, some of the decisions are odd and not what I'd make, but you know, it's an adaptation, whatever. And then you get to the point where they've completely hacked it apart and it's very hard to stay on board 
for that uh, for me personally but I do think yeah each to their own I will not be watching again I'm glad that I've made you watch it I'm glad that I've forced you to experience it also I'm glad that it's out there it probably got the books more popular like the press coverage of the film perhaps got more people to read the books we've heard from people who saw the film first and then read the books and are now diehard fans of the books and it makes me really happy that it perhaps made the books feel more accessible for a lot of people or was like a nice introduction to the books and then you read the books and find out how much more complex and beautifully woven the books are i have a lot of feelings about this film (laughs) (laughs) i'm very glad that i did not get the role of lyra thank you mum, for not taking me to oxford to audition (laughs) (laughs) ah yeah thanks thanks rich's mum. before we leave you just a reminder that we are taking a break now we'll be back with the first chapter of the subtle knife on the 21st of september Uh, but if you want to join us on patreon well we'll be doing a bunch of stuff in between then please do at patreon.com forward slash hdm pod we would love to have you yes come find us or if you have any thoughts about the film send us an email we bloody love an email we do quite happy to hear other people's opinions whether or not we agree with them (laughs) exactly thank you so much for listening to this special episode of her dark materials you can find us on twitter instagram and facebook at hdm pod and you can email us at herdarkmaterialspod at gmail.com you can also visit our website hdmpod.co.uk if you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us because it helps other people find us. I'm Faye and when I'm not talking about the Golden Compass film, I'm probably writing. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Faye which is F-A-Y-E-L-E triple Y. And if you want to read some of my old blog posts, I'm on medium at Faye.ducker. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here raging about the Golden Compass film, I am making designer toys, art, and illustrations. You can find me over on Instagram at RachMakes, on Twitter at Rach underscore Makes, and over at my online shop, RachMakes.co.uk. Huge thanks, as always, to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings. We'll see you on the 21st of September, and don't forget, keep telling stories, and all will be well. Thank you so much. See you in September. Bye.